All right. Well, as many of you know, at this point in our worship, our uh, chapel next door and our venue across campus and then our, our Cactus campus and those watching online <clears throat> are going to join us for our time in the Word. And, uh, you know, we have a, a topic before us today that I will, I will tell you is, is one that clearly separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls when it comes to the Christian faith. It's a Christianity 401 type of topic that uh, at the end of probably the next 40 minutes, I, I promise you, you're either going to have uh, considerable clarification or a lot of confusion. And yet I, I want to uh, encourage you that no matter which it is, God's in it. And uh, we're going to have us all wrestle with something uh, that Henry Nouwen calls the other side of discipleship. So hopefully I've piqued your curiosity enough and uh, we're ready to pray and then we're going to dive right in. So let's do that as a church right now. Bow your heads with me. Father, um, indeed, there are times that the Bible itself says that there are things that are written in there that are hard to understand and hard for us to even incorporate into our spiritual life and experience. And Father, we're going to look at one of those topics today. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us understand rightly the words of Jesus and the words uh, found in the Bible. I pray that you would help us to uh, be open to this aspect of your character and your involvement in our lives and certainly, Lord, not be afraid of it. But as we're going to see, welcome this aspect of you into our lives for no other reason that we desire to be closer to you as Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a good way to get us started because it's something that every one of you has experienced in life, and that is that sometimes in life, love hurts, right? Sometimes love hurts. We all know this. But love hurts when a parent has to to ground or discipline a child in order to teach him or her about responsibility. Uh, love hurts when a spouse is no longer going to put up with emotional abuse or relational abandonment, and so she, he or she chooses to separate from their spouse for a while in order to wake them up to their sin. Uh, love hurts when we watch someone that we care about have to suffer the consequences of their actions and you and I know we could bail them out if we wanted to, but it wouldn't be good for their lives. And so we choose not to precisely because <coughs> we love them, but love hurts. Love hurts when you and I have to say a truthful but difficult thing to a dear friend who's in denial and something has to jar them awake. You and I have all had experiences with this. Either as the giver or the receiver, we've realized that sometimes in life, Love hurts. I can remember one of the first experiences I had as, with this as a young man. I was just getting out of college and going off to seminary. I had been in Cleveland for the summer where my family home was, where I was raised by my parents, and I went to Chicago to pursue my seminary studies. And to this day, I don't know exactly what happened at the age of 22 that would trigger this, but when I got to Chicago, I, I experienced a, a very significant depression in my life. Psychologists would probably call it a clinical depression. I, I couldn't eat for days on end. I was a mess emotionally. I was experiencing panic attacks to boot, and I didn't understand what was happening in my emotions, but it was very real. And so I didn't even unpack in my dorm room for a few weeks because I was so messed up. And the only thing that saved me during that time 
was Greek. I was in a crash course of Greek preparing for seminary, and I had to study Greek for eight hours a day for about six weeks, and it gave me something at least to focus on rather than my messed up emotions. But it was a very difficult time. And one night I had had just about enough, and I wanted to go home back to Cleveland. Now, you got to remember, this was the days before there were cell phones, so I couldn't call. This was the day before email. I couldn't email. This was 1986, and so I remember it was a, a rainy and blustery Chicago night, and I drove to a local strip mall and found a payphone. Do you all remember what those are, payphones? And I picked up the payphone, and I made a collect call. Now, for those of you in the venue who are younger, a collect call is where you, you get an operator and you ask the operator to make the call for you and the other person says they'll pay for it. So I, I did that. We did that often back then. And my dad picked up and, uh, and he accepted the charges and I just started crying. And I just, you know, laid out to him, you know, my emotions and depression, anxiety. I said, I don't even know what to do. I haven't eaten for days. And then I said, and a true story, I said, and dad, I'm thinking that I need to come home. There was a very long pause when I said that. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget what my dad said. He's never um, been accused of not being candid. He, he said to me, you're not coming home. This is not your home. Chicago is now your home. And you're going to stay there and see this through. I could hear my mom in the back go, Frank! And he put his hand over the phone. And, and I could hear him say, Carolyn, stay out of this. This is what he needs to hear. And he got back on the phone. He said, do you understand what I just said to you? And I said, yes, click. <laughs> I went back to my dorm room. And honestly, guys, it took me about a decade to stop being mad at my dad for those words to me. I felt they were harsh. I felt they were strong. I felt they were unloving and unkind. But what do you think I did in response to those words? I stayed in Chicago. And I found a therapist, I started to work through my emotions and got some friends and I prayed through them and, and eventually graduated seminary. And, and I got to believe if my dad had not given those words to me, I probably would have dropped out of seminary, not continued on. Let me give you a hint here. Scottsdale Bible doesn't hire senior pastors who don't have a seminary degree, so I wouldn't be your pastor and I, years ago, or years later, I'd ask dad, was that hard for you to do? I shouldn't have asked him that because he said, no, it was not hard for me to do. But then he said, because I love you. And I knew that that's what you needed. If I even gave you an inch, you would have gotten in your car and drove home. And that would not have been good for you. Sometimes... Love hurts. And the reason that I tell you that story is because if you can understand this aspect of life, either from the examples I gave you earlier or from that story, you're now ready to have a discussion with me about maybe the fact that God is like this at times as well in our lives. That sometimes God acts in such a way toward you and me, he even allows certain things to happen in our lives that are painful and seem very hurtful at the time when we cry out to him and say, why God, would you allow that to happen or even cause that to happen? And he reveals to us that it actually comes from a father heart of love and concern for you and I as his children 
Theologians down through the ages have called this the discipline of God. It's an actual theological study. Jesus called it pruning. So we're in this series right now talking about how to get close to God. We're allowing Jesus' words in John 15 to be our guide. And I taught you last week that he talks about abiding, pruning, and fruit as the keys to closeness with him. Look at what he says in verse 2 of John 15. In likening our lives to a branch staying close to the vine, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So here's what he's saying here. Let's not miss it. He's saying if you are his, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then there are going to be times where he snips and cuts at your life in order to make you a better follower of him. Let's be clear on what pruning is. Webster's Dictionary defines pruning as, and I quote, to cut off or to cut back parts of something for better shape and more fruitful growth. And that's what God does for you and I. But let's be very clear. It's only because he loves you and is involved in your life. This is what he does at times for us that he cares about. Now, tragically speaking... There are a lot of Christians today, I've been doing this a long time, that are very confused and misunderstand this aspect of God's character. Many Christians today do not know exactly what discipline or pruning is. We don't know why God would discipline us. We don't know what the difference is between discipline and punishment. We don't even know how to recognize it, if and when God might be disciplining us. We don't know this other side of discipleship as now and says. And here's my simple point. It hurts us in our walk with him. Imagine a human scenario where you have a mom and a dad, or if you're a single parent, a single mom, single dad, and you got a young child. Imagine a scenario like that where there's never any discipline. I mean, it would be a terrible, terrible family to grow up in. Could it be that God is the same way with you and me? He calls us his children, and yet I rarely hear Christians talk intelligently and biblically about this idea of God's pruning or discipline. So let's do it today. Three things in our time remaining that I want to share with you about the pruning of God. Three things that will help us get started in our understanding here, and I think in the end will even help you appreciate and more embrace this part of God in your life. And here's the first thing we need to understand about his discipline or pruning, and that is that God's pruning comes to you and me in the dual forms of training and or correction. Let me repeat that. His pruning comes to us in the dual forms of training and or correction. Now, Though our main passage today is John 15, verse 2, the words of Jesus about pruning, there is another passage that I'm going to bring into the discussion right now that is the quintessential passage on the discipline of God. It talks extensively about what it is in our lives, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And I'm going to read for you a few of the verses from this passage now, and as I do... 
Just be very open to this aspect of who God is in your life, Cactus Venue Chapel, in your life, because this is who God is as he presents himself to us. So here it is. Oh, and by the way, whenever you see capitals in the New American Standard Bible, it's not God yelling at you. Do you understand that? Like when we text somebody today, if you use caps, it means that you're yelling. That's, nah, no. Uh, capitals in the New American Standard Bible means it's a quotation from the Old Testament here in Proverbs 3. So with that understanding, let's read it. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now quote from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now back to Hebrews. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, very quickly, because we're going to move on from here and do a deep dive into this idea of discipline, let's track the logic of Hebrews 12 here. Notice that it begins by telling us that we should not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when it comes into our lives. So it's telling us that discipline is an important and profitable thing for the Christian. And you're wondering at that point, well, why? And it goes on to tell us, and this is very life-giving, because you're his kid. That's why. The word son here, or you could interpret that son and daughter child, is used six times in four verses. That's telling us something. It's saying that the only reason that God would ever discipline you is simply because you're his kid. You're a part of his family. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, and he welcomes you into the fold and says there's going to be times, however, where it's not just flowery and light. We're going to get down to brass tacks and start working on your character and your maturation, and it's going to be some discipline. But then he says, notice this thirdly, don't worry about that because God's discipline is what? Verse 10, perfect. It's always for our good. This is really life-giving. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this week. I thought, you know, parental discipline with our kids, even in the best of us, do we all understand is imperfect. I've seen it with Kim and I. I know some of you won't admit this, but there are times when we discipline our kids and it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> That's not a good thing. We shouldn't feel like that. There's times we're telling them to go to our room or do something like that, you know, and we're kind of like, I'm kind of glad they're out of my hair, you know, and here's what you need to know. God's never like that. God never disciplines us and says, boy, did that feel good. Boy, I'm glad they're out of my hair. I'm glad I'm doing this to them. I also notice in today's parenting environment, there's times where we discipline our kids and now it's the other part of the extreme. We think we maybe have been too harsh, Right. And, and, and so what do we do? We then pull the kid back in and say, you know what, I know I disciplined you, but I'm kind of sorry because it was too harsh. And by then, they're completely confused. I, I, here's as you know, God's never like that. God never is going to come to you and say, you know what, gosh, I made a mistake. I was kind of harsh on you, and I'm sorry I was that way. No, his discipline is perfect. 
And it leads us to the fourth and final observation of this passage that is very life-giving, and that is that discipline, by its very nature, though uncomfortable and painful, is worth it because notice what it says you will become if you can embrace his discipline, peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the kind of follower you're gonna be of his. So simply see when you add it all up, that discipline, this uncomfortable and painful process is meant, you ready for this? To be a natural and ongoing part of your walk with God. Whoa. I mean, again, can, can you imagine ever saying to your child when they're like six years old or something like that, you know, and, and they've done pretty good in life, say, you know what, hey man, you're six now. I just gotta tell you, we're never gonna have to discipline you again. Man, kid, you've arrived. Like, we're never, you'd never say that to a kid. Why? Because you and I are convinced that good discipline is a natural and ongoing part of our maturation as human beings. Simply drag that now into your relationship with God because he says the same thing. Now, with this understanding, let's go deeper with this. Because as I've looked closely at this passage and numerous other biblical texts over the years that talk about God's discipline, and by the way, there are two dozen of them in the New Testament, all using the same Greek word for discipline. There's over a hundred of them in the Old Testament. I have noticed a pattern in which there is a clear and identifiable dual form, if you will, of discipline in God's economy. And the best way to do it is to visualize it, that if you see God's discipline here, God talks about training on the one end and correction on the other. What do we mean by that? Let's first take a look at this idea of, of training. There's a passage in the Bible that directly tells us what this is like. It's found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and it says this. Some of you are familiar with this passage. You've just never focused on this word. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So let me blow your mind right now. This word training in the original Greek is the exact same word used five times in Hebrews chapter 12. There translated as discipline. It's just that the reason we translate it in the English here training is because discipline wouldn't fit. You wouldn't say it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for discipline in righteousness because the nuance of this aspect of God's character in our lives is a training form of discipline that he wants us to consistently be about here. And this is the kind of discipline that many of us, again, in the world today are familiar with. If you've been involved in athletics or in the military, you know that you train hard, that you discipline yourself to achieve a certain goal, that it's arduous and strict and uncomfortable and painful at times, but you engage in it because you want a better body or you want a certain goal that you're after. So I love how Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys, once said it. This is a good quote. He said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. And here's my point. Could it be that God functions similarly in your life? And you're saying right now, like what? Like what does God want me to do that I don't want to do? May I list it for you right now? 
How about being consistently obedient in your behavioral life? Reading the word every day and becoming a man or woman of the word. How about a consistent prayer life? How about evangelizing your neighbor that you don't want to offend? How about hanging out with Christians that you don't like, but you're going to spend eternity with them, so God says hang out with them now? How about serving God with your gifts and passions that at times feels dutiful, but God says do it. Think of all the spiritual disciplines that I bug you guys about all the time. The reason I do is exactly what Landry is getting at here, that this is a form of our training. John Piper in his writings argues that you have to train your soul to learn to love God. You have to train it to learn to respond to the things of God. And that's why the word of God and prayer and service and fellowship and evangelism and obedience are such important spiritual disciplines. They're part of his training in our lives. It's the first side of his discipline. Now, believe it or not, that's the easy side of his discipline. There's a second type of discipline that God will bring into our lives. That's why I say there's a dual form. And this is known as the correction type of discipline. And what you need to know is that though this is a very different kind of discipline, watch this, it still has the exact same goal in mind and the exact same heart of grace and love behind it. And this is where a lot of Christians are confused. I want to show you a passage now that I'll warn you is probably one of the most brutal passages in all of the New Testament. A lot of Christians don't park in front of this passage because it's not easy to understand. We're going to understand it today. It talks about this, this other side of discipleship, this discipline of the Lord. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 and 32, and listen to what it says. It says, for this reason, meaning ongoing and unconfessed sin among many in the Corinthian church, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep which is a flowery way of saying die. He says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. You can now see why a lot of Christians might avoid this verse. Let's understand it thoroughly, shall we? Notice first that this word uses the word disciplined here, same word out of Hebrews chapter 12, but even more importantly, as we noted, the same word used in 2 Timothy 3.16, the one that is translated training. But it doesn't mean, obviously, the training part here. This word is used very differently to talk about correction. This is a kind of discipline, don't miss this, in which a child of God who is loved by him has clearly and obviously veered off the path of faith, big time straying and running from God, many times with complicating sin involved. And so in loving response, God either allows or even sometimes brings painful situations in in order to get the attention of the wandering child and bring him or her back to his or her senses. And though I know, because I could hear a pin drop in this room right now, that this sounds so very ominous and harsh, and it can be sometimes depending on the situation, what we also need to realize is that this kind of discipline, this correction discipline, goes all on all the time in our human relationships, 
It's just that we're afraid to ever think that this might be how God is with us sometimes. But he is. As the author of Hebrews says, do not faint. You see, we've all learned, you and I have, that that this kind of discipline that has uncomfortable and painful consequences to it can be very motivating. It's why we use it with our children. It's why it's used in the marketplace, schools, and society in general. And all you need to understand here is that it's also used with God. But what we need to remember with God is that even when he resorts to drastic actions to discipline us, and sometimes he does, it is totally and 100% coming from a heart of grace, a fatherly heart of grace, and it's for our benefit that he does this. You know, years ago when I was doing a deep dive on this study of God's discipline, the year was actually 2001, there was an article that had just come out a few years before that out of Indiana of all places that I thought was an amazing illustration of this and the physical realm that we can transfer to the spiritual realm. The article appeared in 1998 out of Lafayette, Indiana, and it told the story, the true story, of how the Norfolk Southern train in Indiana was rolling down the tracks through a small town one day at 24 miles per hour, when all of a sudden the the engineer, I'm sorry, the conductor, Robert Moore, uh, saw something about a city block away on the tracks that he thought initially was a dog. So he started beeping the horn or, or the whistle. And the engineer, Rod Lindley, also noticed it, and the two started to squint and look closer, and all of a sudden, Robert Moore said, that's not a dog, that's a child. And sure enough, little Emily Marshall, a 19-month-old toddler whose family had a house along the tracks, had been out in the backyard with her mom planting flowers. Her mom turned her back for a minute, and, and Emily had wandered onto the tracks, And the engineers knew right away that they were not going to be able to stop the train. It was only a city block away, 24 miles per hour. Robert Moore also quickly figured out that there's no way he could jump down, run ahead of the train. It was going too fast to get Emily out of the way. And so what he did was heroic, if not amazing. Picture this. He he ran along the side of the main engine there, and he got onto the front of the train, and he put one foot on the very front of the train and grabbed on to something on the front of it, and as the train just got very close to Emily, about ready to run her over, he kicked her as hard as he could, and she went careening off the side of the tracks down the little hill. You can picture all the gravel there and, and, and out of harm's way. The train eventually stopped a little while later, and Robert Moore ran off there and ran back to Emily thinking, oh my gosh, how is she? He said he was never more glad to hear the cry of a toddler. And he picked her up, and he put her in his arms, and she was bloody, some cuts on her face, but she was okay. And I love how the article talks about this. I'm going to read it for you directly from the original article in Lafayette News. It says, and I quote, when the paramedics arrived and tried to take Emily, she clung to Moore's shirt. Moore says she didn't want to let loose of me. See, here's what I wonder. I wonder sometimes if God's not doing that in your life. We call it God's loving kick. I wonder sometimes if you and I aren't on a railroad track that we don't need to be on. And we don't know it. We're too stupid to know it, at least in God's eyes. And he's tried to get our attention. He's, he's blowing the whistle and we're not seeing him. And so what he does is he gets on the front of that engine and he gives us a nice little kick. 
And we go off the side and like a little 19-year-old toddler, we're crying, we're all scraped up. We're like, why did you do that to me? And God comes along and he takes us up in his arms. And we realize that the same one that kicked us is the same one that loves us and did that precisely to protect us. See, I, I know no other way to see it, gang. This is the God who loves you. He's gonna prune you. He's gonna discipline you at time. Training, all the time. Correction at times. And we need to understand this aspect of God. Now, very quickly, because we're gonna put all this together in a very practical way in just a minute here and answer some very tough questions that are raised in a, a look at this. Uh, but very quickly, let me give you a point two that again, a lot of Christians get messed up on and we have to clarify with precision here what we're talking about when it comes to God. And that is this, that God's pruning is not punishment. Boy, that's really important for you to know. Here's the skinny on this. Punishment, according to the Bible, has to do with looking back at what you have done and you have to pay a penalty for what you have done. We all know that's what punishment is, the same way in our judicial system today. Discipline, however, according to the Bible, is a forward-looking entity that says, no, there might be consequences, but not a penalty. You need to be disciplined in order to have a better future. And in the Bible, these are two very, very different things. The Bible uses different Greek words to describe discipline and punishment. Let me, let me blow your mind here right now because this is very important for us to understand. As we've already established discipline, the Greek word for discipline means training, correcting, chastising, instructing. It comes with a clear sense to restore a believer who is being wayward. Now get this. I've looked at every one of the instances in the New Testament, and I can't find one instance where discipline is used for a non-Christian in the Bible. It's only used for God's children, for those he loves, for those that he's trying to restore. That's why even one of the more harsher chapters of the Bible, Revelation 3.19, that's talking about the discipline of God with those seven churches, God finally says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So even in the most gritty passages in the Bible, God reminds us that this idea of discipline is this forward-looking motion of God to help you become a better you in him. That's why he does it. Now, let's quickly contrast that with punishment. There's actually eight different Greek words in the New Testament on punishment. It talks about it more than we might be comfortable with. And every one of them have a similar and overlapping meaning. It means to pay a penalty for, to avenge, to be retributive. And some of you are going, is God really that way? Listen to me closely. <laughs> yeah, he is. God, people like to admit this, has a wrathful side to his character. But here's what you need to know about it. It's reserved for those who give a final no to him in their lives. And it's really reserved for the end of time when God's justice is going to set things right. And I told you guys this before, we should be thankful for this side of God because if there's no justice with God, then how in the world would we ever wanna follow him? But it is a harsh justice. Look at what he says. This is the word punishment in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And these, meaning those who reject God in the end, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
Some of you are going, man, that sounds so harsh. Well, let's let Jesus tell us about this. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. He says something similar. And these, meaning those who reject him, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, so here's what you need to know. Punishment pays back, and I can't find one instance in the New Testament where punishment is applied to a believer. And some of you are going, well, how could that be? Think about this. This is amazing good news. In fact, it's the good news. It's because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin already. Amen? I'll pick on my buddy Steve here. God has no reason to ever punish you, Steve. Isn't that good news? Because Jesus took that punishment for Steve. And so God does not reserve that kind of stuff ever, ever, ever for him. In fact, I told you guys that the great right throne of judgment, you can read about it in Revelation, you're going to whiz through that if you're a follower of Jesus. Because God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And if you dare say, because I was a good person, he's going to smack you for that one. No, that's not the right answer. You're going to say, because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for my sin, he's going to say, enter into your rest. There's no penalty for believers. There's no punishment for believers. But there is discipline for believers. Give me a head nod. You all understand that. One's restorative. One is to pay penalty for. You are not under the wrath of God. And this is very life-giving <laughs> for you. Because I, I hear Christians use words that just clue me into terrible theology on a regular basis. And I love you guys. but I And I don't correct you in the moment because that's rude. But I, I want to. And you've all heard Christians say this too. Have you ever heard a Christian say, you better be careful there, God's gonna get you. You know, and, and, and he's gonna pay you back for that one. You know, and I, I sit there and go, have you read the Bible? I mean, if you're his, he doesn't use words like pay you back and get you in some retributive way. No, if anything, he's standing on the front of the locomotive <laughs> trying to get your attention saying, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much I wanna cradle you in my arms. But right now, you're not hearing that whack. And he kicks us off the tracks. And then you come crying to your pastor. You guys do it all the time. Why did God allow this to me? And I don't know. I'm going to tell you in a second here. I can't tell you if you're under the discipline of God. Only you and God can know. And I'm going to help you learn how to do that in a minute here. But don't be surprised if at times he allows some discipline into your life to help you to see or to become the person that he wants you to be, but it's not punishment. So God's pruning is real and it comes in two forms, training and correction. And it's not punitive, it's restorative in nature. And now let's put all this together. One final thing that I want to share with you today and I've been hinting to this all along. And again, I, some of you are maybe ready to accept this, some of you might not, but just hang in there. God's not done with you yet, but here it is. And that is that because he loves you for the rest of your life, expect pruning. Can I say it any more clearer? Expect pruning. Again, it's as silly as saying to your teenager, hey, you've arrived, we'll never have to discipline you again. You would not say that to a teenager if you loved him. And God is never going to say that to you because you're not going to arrive to heaven. And so because he loves you and is involved in your life, you should expect pruning. Now, let's wrestle with this for a second because the question becomes, once we get this, how do we tell when God is pruning or disciplining us, right? I mean, Jamie, if it is going to happen, if Jesus is right in John 15 that God will prune those who are his, then how do we know when this is going on in our lives? 
How do we tell the difference between simply difficult times in a fallen world that Jesus told us would happen or the natural consequences of our mistakes, which we all know we experience, or the actual discipline, the active discipline of God in our lives? And in answering this, we need to recognize that in one sense, to be biblically pure, we're always under the discipline of God, and that should make you feel good, right? So this training sense is also as disciplined, and you're always in training, so you can safely say, and this doesn't motivate some of you, but it should, hey, I'm in the discipline of God. Isn't that great? In fact, say that at work tomorrow. They'll think you're nuts, but, but just say that, think to yourself, it's okay, I'm always in his discipline, and he loves me, breathe easy, I'm, I'm in the training mode. But I know what you're asking. You're more asking, how can I tell if he is correcting me? Now, in answering that question, the question becomes, can I simply assume that when bad things happen to me, I'm being disciplined? What's the answer to that? No. I know some Christians that do that. It's a terrible, terrible way to think and live. I remember years ago when I was in college, brand new Christian, I was wrestling with this and I, I was wondering, you know, I mean, how do I know when God's disciplining me? Because I, I had a lot of things that needed to work on in my life. I still do. And, and I remember thinking, I wonder if like I'm walking down the road and remember when we had sidewalks that weren't even and Scottsdale, they're perfect. But back in my hometown, they weren't even. And, and, and you'd be walking down the sidewalk and, you, and you'd trip. And I remember asking a dear friend of mine in college, you know, do you think that like when I'm walking down the sidewalk and I trip that it's God's way of trying to get my attention and say, hey, dummy, you know, you need to see this. And I loved his answer. It was great. He said, no, that can't be the case because if it was, I'd be tripping and falling all over the place. Think about that. You're a mess most of the time. And we all have issues that we're working on. And so if just having difficult issues in our lives means the discipline of God, then man, we're all goners. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. And that has nothing to do with the discipline of God. We live in a fallen world in which bad things happen to God's people. And it's not his fault, but it's not his discipline. He loves you. So how do we know? And the answer is contained, believe it or not, in the passage that we looked at earlier. I told you we were going to fully understand it. So last scripture, last time today, let's look at that passage in Corinthians that most Christians are afraid of. And let's notice something very life-giving in this. It says, for this reason, unconfessed sin, many of you are sick and weak and a number of you sleep, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged or disciplined by God. Pause on that one. I would submit to you <laughs> that this phrase, judged ourselves rightly, is the key to discerning the discipline of God in our lives and even avoiding it at times. That word judged there in the original language literally means to discern, to distinguish. It means to take inventory about something. And so the idea becomes that if you and I are taking an honest internal stock of our lives and behaviors and then laying it out before God, if we're that gutsy and honest, then at the very least he will reveal to us the nature of how he feels about us at any given moment, and even the possibility of being okay with him and not under his discipline. And again, this is not formulaic, as you'll see in a minute. It's not magic. It takes a lot of spiritual work to do this. It's a discernment, and it's really between you and God. 
Many people come to you all the time and they lay their case out before me and you say, you think God is disciplining? And I, I love it because I go, I don't know. This is between you and God. But you can, <coughs> excuse me, lay this out before him in such a way that you get an answer. Let me explain. When I say take an inventory of your life, give me the three here, I, I, I'm talking about a regular behavior inventory, trust inventory, and love inventory. Those are the three inventories you need to take regularly of your life if you want to stay clean before God. First, analyze your behavior. And here's the key to this, gang. Ask yourself, is there any unconfessed and unchecked sin in my life? Do you have the guts to do that? And notice the grace in that question. Unconfessed and unchecked. God is not asking you to be perfect. He's not asking you to get over all of your issues right now. He's asking you to be honest and be a man or woman before him that lays out the nature of your life and says, this is who I am, God. I don't like it, I know you don't, but let's just lay it out there at the foot of the cross. That's what he's really after in you. And there are times where I'm analyzing my behavior and saying, God, what is it I'm not seeing right now? And if you really have guts, you ready for this one? Ask your wife, ask your husband, or ask your best friend. Don't ask the country club buddy, don't ask the barroom buddy, don't ask your best friend from third grade, because they're gonna lie to you. They just wanna make you feel good. Ask somebody that you know is spiritually mature, that won't snow you, that'll be honest with you and even risk the relationship. Is there anything you see in me that I ain't seeing right now? And the point is, is that when you do that, you're gonna start to get out before God <coughs> anything that might be between you and him. And even if you don't fully repent of them, there've been things I've been working on for 38 years. That's okay in one sense. He's more concerned that you get honest before him. What does he say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And do you remember the promise? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so he just wants you to be honest about what's in your life right now. And then some of you are going, what's a trust inventory? This is more important than people think. Romans 14, verse 23. I know I've thrown a lot at you today, but this is another brutal verse. Romans 14, verse 23 says, everything that is not of faith is sin. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, you gotta be kidding me. Everything that's not of faith is sin. How could God say that? And then the logic hit me and it's impeccable. When you are not trusting him, who are you trusting? Anybody know? Yeah, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. That's who you're trusting. And so God abhors that. He created you to depend on him. And so any moment that we're not trusting him, and I don't know about you, but it's a lot for me. There's a lot of times during the day where I'm saying, you know, I got a seminary degree and, you know, I'm pastoring a good church and my wife still loves me and my kids are semi-okay and all these things. And I go through my little thing and I, and, and I go, you know, I'm doing pretty good. What if I failed in all that? To give glory to him, to realize he is the giver of all of that and to trust him with everything in me. I wonder if sometimes there's distance between you and God, me and God, because we're just not trusting him. We're not being humble enough to admit that, that, that he is the author of everything we have and worthy of our trust. And then very quickly, love inventory. We're gonna talk more about this next week, but some of you go, love inventory, sounds like a Hallmark card. You know, no, it's not. This is the most gritty thing the Bible ever says to us. The only thing that counts, Galatians 5, 6, is faith expressing itself through love. 
the goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy, is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the only three things that remain are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. Two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Could it be that the reason that some of us feel distant from God is because we say we love him and we're just a jerk to those around us? My wife was here right now, and I'm kind of glad she's not. Uh, she would tell you that I, I, I do pretty good on the behavior inventory. In fact, I do very well on that because I got to watch my P's and Q's as your pastor. And, and I really do work hard to trust God every day. But she would tell you that if there's anything that, that I struggle with in my inventory, it's this one. I can be very impatient. Some of you are going, that's not a big sin. Yeah, it is. Love is patient, the Bible says. But Jamie, many times, many times is not. What does it say next? Love is patient. Love is kind. <laughs> My wife still, even though I've said it publicly, she still yells down probably once a week from the stairs as I'm leaving for the day. She'll yell down, be nice. And I'll think to myself, why does she have to say that to me? And then I get here to the church and the staff will tell you why she has to say that to me. Because I, I get in this, I know it's hard for you guys to picture, but I get in this passionate go mode. And I, you know, what are we going to do next? Da, 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 da. Before you know it, I'm running people over. That, that's not kind. There's lots of things in my character that when I do a love inventory, I find that I can confess before him. And as you do these inventories, you just might discover some things that you didn't know before that, that maybe you realize this is why God's kicking me. Or maybe even realize this is, if I recognize this, he won't have to kick me. And again, I, I know how some of you think. You're thinking about Jamie. Look, I, I get that, okay? I got these inventories, but I still got lots of issues. I'm a massive work in progress. How do I know if a particular struggle that I'm going through right now is the result of his discipline? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Here's the last thing I got for you, but this really does work, and it's going to sound so simple, but most of you don't do it, so let's be men and women about this and do it, and that is to ask him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wondered if you're being disciplined by God? and you've done your inventories, and you're still confused, how about just going to him and saying, God, this is going on in my life. I don't know why. I don't know what this is about. Is this somehow tied to something I'm not seeing? Are you trying to get my attention here? Just ask him. Because here's what I know about God. He loves you. Have I said it enough today? He loves you. And here's what I know about families, and God says we're all part of his family, is that a good father, if little Johnny comes to him, or a good mother, if little Susie comes and says, Mommy or Daddy, are you mad at me? What's Mommy and Daddy going to do? They're going to give an honest answer. We all know bad parents. I mean, I've seen it when I was growing up, you know, the grouchy dad, and, you know, the kid will come and say, Dad, is, are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. Get out of my face. Well, and that's just a bad parent there. We started off earlier saying God's not that way. Here's what I know. If you, if you ask him, he's going to tell you. He says he wants to give good gifts to his children. If you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. That's what Jesus taught us. And sometimes I think we're just so afraid of his discipline, and even when we're not afraid, we just don't ask him. Again, this isn't formulaic. And it's between you and God. This is Christianity 401, the other side of discipleship. But, but, but there's freedom here. Freedom to know that he loves you. He's a good father. And he doesn't want you in the dark in your life. He's going to reveal that to you as you do your inventory and you lay yourself out before him. 
Well, as we wrap up and go to the communion table, let me say one last time, because I worry when we do this topic that it's going to be more confusing than helpful, but let me say it one last time. At the end of the day, whether you get this or not, he loves you. If you're his child, if you believe in Jesus, his grace is upon you. Hebrews 4 is an amazing passage. It says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence because he can help us in our time of need. He loves you that much. But because he loves you, there's time he's going to give you a kick. But don't blame him for that kick. Lay on the side of the tracks. Wait for him to pick you up because he will because he loves you. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this word from Jesus in John 15, expounded in Hebrews 12 for our lives. And God, I got to believe this is relevant to many of us. Lord, I know on a weekly basis, I'm laying out my life before you, just wondering what you are up to. And Lord, this helps. This helps as I walk with you and lay my life before you to know that there's some times where things aren't going to feel good in my walk with you, but that that's okay. You're probably up to something. And so, God, I pray that we would not be afraid of this aspect of your character, but that we would be, as Hebrews 12, the kind of men and women who do not faint at your discipline nor run from it, but embrace it as a vital part of our walk with you. Thanks for loving us. We love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.